And uh, we'll start just by reading the verse that we've been looking at from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus said, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Today, um, we're going to continue this current series of talks entitled Life with Jesus, and we're going to focus this morning on what it is to have a servant-hearted life. And um, probably I shouldn't be, from our family, I shouldn't be the person speaking about that today, because Abby, my wife, um, was up all night with one of our kids, was all sick all through the night, and I'd, I woke up in the morning, and I was like, that was a good night's sleep. She was like, for you? I think she just wanted to make sure because she knew I was doing this so she just sorted it all out so she's the that she should be talking about servant hearted but anyway um when I sort of meet new people I I find myself in um I guess that question that a lot of people ask what do you do for a living they ask that question and I say oh I work at a church and you get a range of reactions at that point sometimes people are like what like a like a priest or like a vicar or something and you're like sort of and then they, they say and that's like, that's your job. That's, you get paid to do that, do you? And you're like, yeah. Full time. Full time. Yes. And they say, all right. And then, and then they generally ask me a question that, that I'm sure some of you might have wondered from time to time. And that is, so what exactly do you do all week? <laughs> and that's the point in the conversation where usually I, I end up not trying to really explain what I do, but I find myself explaining what, what you do, like what, what we do as a church. I find myself talking about, about all the compassion ministries and the arches, and I find myself talking about Trent Kids and, and Trent Youth and things like the night shelter that we're doing at the moment and Trent Debt Advice, and I talk about the way we have a worship bar- band and uh, the way we support overseas projects like Love the One. And I, and I talk about how all this stuff is done by all these people who are just in the church, volunteers. I often find myself talking about the way that this is a, a servant-hearted church. And I find that there's loads and loads and loads to talk about. This, this room is filled with examples of wonderful, amazing, servant-hearted people. People like, like Martin, um, who served on, on, the Trent, on Trent Kids Rockets age group for over 10 years. Or a lady called Jill, who serves on Liftoff. Apparently she knows all the names of all the kids individually who come. People like Rosie, who's one of the students here. Apparently the other week she was here serving at the Cause to Live conference that we hosted. Um, And um, during the conference, a friend of hers fell down the stairs and she had to be taken to hospital. So Rosie whizzed her off to hospital and then she dashed back here to serve on team that night. And then later on that evening, she went and picked her friend up at one o'clock in the morning from the hospital, took her home, and then she still made it back here at nine o'clock the next morning for her volunteer shift. People like Luke... Um, and there's probably one of these in an awful lot of small groups who bakes and brings cakes to small group every week without being asked. People like Sarah on the youth team, who apparently, invariably, on Tuesday nights, she is the one at the end of the night with her marigolds on, washing up over 100 cups. And uh, Anoli said it's a job that she's never been asked to do. And I could just go on all morning telling more and more stories like this, because there's hundreds and hundreds of people like that. On any given Sunday, there's over 200 people who serve behind the scenes to make the different services happen. And a few years ago, somebody added up all the serving work that was being done in and through the church's ministries, and it totaled over 16,000 voluntary hours a month. 
getting close to 200,000 voluntary hours a year. If we, were, if we had to pay for that, we'd all have to start tithing, wouldn't we? That would be a lot of money. And I remember when I first started um, getting involved here, I think it was that quality, this desire to, to practice what is preached and actually roll our sleeves up and do the stuff that it says in the Bible, that was something that really appealed to me as a person who was exploring this church. And, and it gave this church credibility in my eyes. And so that's why I think, perhaps going back to that conversation that I was talking about with a stranger, that I find myself talking about all these acts of service. Because as I'm talking to that person, I might not know what they believe about faith or Jesus or miracles or religion. I might not know any of those things. But, but what I guess is that they, like most people, would agree that it's, it's, it's morally good, it's intrinsically decent to serve other people. It's something that people in most cultures consider to be true. Um, generally, people are inspired by stories of people who, who make sacrifices for others. But here's a question, a deep question, I suppose, for us to consider is, why? Why is it good to put other people first? Why is it good to do that? Apparently, um, psychologists and philosophers and biologists have, have debated for a long time exactly what is going on in our brain when we decide to behave altruistically, when we, when, we, when we make decisions to put other people first. Some suggest that it's something that we've evolved over the years. People like um, Richard Dawkins famously proposed that we, can only, we only appear to be selfless organisms at times because we actually have selfish genes. Some evolutionary biologists use the language reciprocal altruism to describe this decision to help others with a, a, an, an understanding and a belief that, that will potentially benefit um, and, and get some payoff from having done that act for somebody else's behalf. And the, and the psychological theory of psychological egoism suggests that any act of service is ultimately motivated by the possibility of an intrinsic reward. In other words, a lot of people would suggest that there's, there's no such thing as a truly selfless act. Whenever we do something on behalf of others, we're, we're actually in some way hoping or actually benefiting ourselves. And lots of people would say that. In a New York Times article, though, that, um, by a, a philosophy professor by, called Judith Lynchbury, she, um, she suggested um, a question around that. She said, I think one, people, one reason people deny that altruism exists, this, you know, um, one, people, one reason people deny that we can do anything that's truly selfless is because looking inwards, they doubt the purity of their own motives. And I, and, and I wonder, perhaps many of us could resonate with that. Because um, I don't know if you're like me, but I know that there's, there's so many times when I do things that appear good, but on, internally I've got slightly flawed motives. Do you know what I mean? You know, perhaps when we, when we pay somebody a compliment and, and silently, internally, we're hoping that they would, they would think better of us as a result of it. Or we, we perform some act of service hoping that others would see. You know, that moment where you're like, oh... Oh, hi, John and Debbie. I'm oh, just carrying the bins out, yeah. Oh, fancy, <laughs> fancy bumping into you. What a coincidence. You know, it's great. What a great moment. <laughs> I don't know whether any of you ever done that. You know, some, some kind of doing something good in exchange for a bit of moral credit, even perhaps just to feel better about ourselves. 
um, I, I was reminded of that, that. There's a line in a song by Blur, Park Life, uh, where he says, I feed the pigeons. I sometimes feed the sparrows too. It gives me a sense of enormous well-being. And then I'm happy for the rest of the day, safe in the knowledge that there will always be a bit of my heart devoted to it. But the question that I want to ask, really, looking at all of that is, so is it actually possible for these acts of service to come not from selfish, self-seeking motives? Is it possible to actually, for these things to come out of the overflow of our heart? Is it possible for us as humans to actually have a true servant heart? And I believe the answer to that question is yes. I believe that in Jesus' life and his example, we, we, we gain insight into a vision of a human heart that is so good and so true that it captivates and it transforms our hearts and it compels us to serve others around us. And so today we're going we're gonna to take a look at that example of Jesus' example to see what a servant heart looks like. And we're going to look at one particular story that's recorded um, in John's Gospel and it's, it takes place in the midst of a super dramatic moment because um, it, was, um, it, was, it was the night, the last night that Jesus spent with his disciples um, before he was betrayed and ultimately executed. And, um, and it was also that, that, that they were celebrating the Jewish festival of the Passover at the time, which is a really significant night for them, when they were remembering this 1,500-year-old this story of how, as people, they had been saved generations and generations ago um, by the sacrifice of a lamb and rescued from slavery in Egypt. And as they celebrated that, this is what Jesus did. Chapter 13. So Jesus knew that the hour had come for he to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the, power, that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water in the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. I'm just going to skip down. When he finished, verse 12, when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me Lord and teacher, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So, what does this story tell us about servant-heartedness? The first thing that I want to suggest is that it, it tells us that servant hearts are not concerned with status. So apparently it was, it was custom as, a, as an act of hospitality to provide people with a bowl of water um, to sort of ritually wash their feet 
in preparation for the meal. Um, in some cases, they would have a slave or a servant do it, but this, was a, a, this job was considered a humbling task. You know, it might be a, a sort of a, a wife might wash her husband's feet or a child might wash their parents' feet, but it, it wasn't considered to be sort of something that you would do for, for somebody who was a peer in that culture and in that time. Um, and, and, and obviously, it was quite a gritty job to do. This was before tarmac and before shoes, so feet got pretty mucky during the day. And, um, and one historical source, a little bit later than Jesus, said that at that time, this job of washing other people's feet was reserved for Gentile slaves. In other words, not Jewish slaves, because they, they felt that it was too demeaning a job for, for a Jewish person to do. And so here is Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, behaving like a slave. And there's a sort of a palpable sense of awkwardness in this moment. I remember a few years ago, I got a little bit of insight into um, how awkward it was. Um, when I was away, a, a small group weekend away, and we went away together, and this lady in the group, she planned this brilliant session where we read this story together, and then she got a, a bowl, bowls of water and all these, like, foot um, washing products and things, and she split us into, like, the girls and the boys, and she said, right, now we're going to go and do likewise. We're going to demonstrate our desire to love and serve one another by, by washing one another's feet. So immediately, the ladies embraced this exercise. They were, you know, massaging, chatting, just having a brilliant time. And the men just stood around the bowl, <laughs> looking at each other. And we were all thinking the same thing. I do not want to handle anyone's stinky feet. This is too awkward. It's too intense. It's gross. And so we were kind of paralyzed with this social awkwardness until one person, one member of the group, who's going to remain anonymous, um, stepped up and he said, OK, I can see nobody wants to do this. It's OK, I'll take one for the team. And then he, um, he un undid his laces and said, who wants to wash my feet? <laughs> <laughs> I think, so that day, we, we, we experienced a glimpse of the social awkwardness the disciples would have felt. And you can hear that awkwardness in Peter's comment when he's like, are you going to wash my feet, Lord? The implication here is that, Jesus, you're too important to do this. Jesus, this is beneath you. And in that, we can see that, that Peter, his view of the situation was, he wasn't seeing the situation through with a servant heart. He was looking at the situation with, with, with a prideful heart because it was clear that in his mind, he associated servanthood with low status. And maybe this was the same logic that had stopped him thus far from taking the initiative and washing the other's feet. But Jesus, he just shatters that idea that, that service is somehow linked to people of low status. So just in this one sentence, I'll bring it up on the screen. You see, look at the blue bit and then the red bit. These two ideas just push, push together. Jesus knew that the Father had put things all under his power. He knew that he was God in the blue bit. But then the red bit, so... Because he was God, he, he, he got up from the meal and he washed the disciples' feet. These two seemingly paradoxical statements mashed up against one another. He's the king, but he's the servant. He's the servant king. Ultimate status, humbling servitude, whacked together in the person. And because of that, followers of Jesus, we need to understand that status does not discount us from serving. 
And this is a point where when I was writing this, I just thought the thing that I really want to do more than anything at this point in the talk is affirm you as a church. Because I think this is something that we really, do, there's evidence, a lot of evidence that we get this as a church. I love the fact that on the teams that serve here in the church, they're made up of people from all different walks of life. People who hold positions in their career or in the world that, 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 that the world might associate with a degree of status. We've got people like, you know, company directors and doctors and part, partners in firms and charter professionals and all those kind of types of people. And they put on the same lanyards and they serve on the same rotors, and they put on the same T-shirts as everybody else. I love the fact that they don't consider their time more valuable than anybody else's time. And I think it's um, the fact that that is just part of the culture here, I think is a way that we, we practically work out our belief that worldly status is not an indicator of kingdom status. If Jesus, the king of the universe, can roll up his sleeves and put on an apron then so can all of us. We can empty a bin. We can, we can do the refreshments. And um, we can go out on a Thursday night with our small group and, and serve the community around us. We can do a tea round for the team that we work with and lead at work or muck in when they have a deadline to meet. We can hold any position that we have lightly, being willing to just take it off and put on an apron of service if and when required. Because servant hearts are not concerned with status. The second thing I think this passage shows us about servant-heartedness is that servant hearts embrace sacrifice. You know, I think personally, I think sometimes one of the reasons that I sometimes find it difficult to serve other peoples is because sometimes internally I've made a decision that they don't really deserve it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just feels sometimes like, for me to serve them is not really fair. Have you ever felt that when maybe when you're, you're doing something that you've done time and time again and, it's, and it doesn't feel like it's your turn, but you're kind of like, oh man, does anybody, does anybody else in this house know how to turn the hoover on? You know that kind of feeling. Or I'm sure I took the bin out last time. Or um, I'm sure I changed the last nappy. Isn't it somebody else's turn? Or at work, am I the only one who knows how to load the paper in the photocopier? And, then, and, and we get ourselves into a place where we feel that way and we say something like, right, I'll do it then, <laughs> through gritted teeth. That's not a servant heart, is it? We're, up, we're serving. We're serving, but our heart isn't in, in it. And we're asking, how is this fair? Don't they appreciate what this is costing me? I think we've all felt that at some point, but I think that's where Jesus' example to us is so challenging and inspiring. Because... On this occasion, he knew that this was the last night that he was going to spend with his friends, the disciples, before the horror of his death, his crucifixion. He knew that. It says in verse 1, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knew that. And yet, although he had a lot of, lot of stuff going on that night, you know, he had his death, the torture, the execution, crouching at his door. Jesus was preoccupied not with that. He was preoccupied with his people that night. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about them. The, the, these words are just beautiful in verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Even on that night. It's amazing. 
And he demonstrates that love by starting to then serve them and wash their feet. Even the feet of his betrayer. Even the feet of Judas. And he says, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Because, of course, this act of washing the feet was about something far more important and significant than just washing feet. He was talking about something far more humiliating and costly and, frankly, important. This was just a symbol of what Jesus was going to do for them and do for all of us on the cross. Dying to wash away not just stinky feet, but our sins. Jesus knew that he was about to endure a suffering and sacrifice that he didn't deserve, but he'd chosen to do it. He'd embraced it, not through gritted teeth, but as a servant. You know, on that night, he could have said, look, guys, I'm about to do something incredible for you, so why don't you just wash my feet and get my dinner because I just need some space? But he didn't. Even when Peter tries to draw a line for him, even when Peter says, no, Jesus, don't wash my feet, Jesus was just resolute about this. He said, no, unless I wash you, you can have no part with me. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, just just imagine, I know this is going to be a bit of a thing to imagine, but imagine that 2,000 years ago you were in a, a small group with Jesus, a celestial small group. And, um, you know, you're catching up around this time. And you say, oh, Jesus, how's, how's things going? How are you doing? How's that world of yours and those humans that you, you love so much? And Jesus turns to you and he says, oh, not good, actually. It's pretty serious. They're, they're in a mess. Their hearts are far from me. Um, they've they've continued to re- rebel against my father's law. They've, they've, they're ignoring my spirit. They're trapped in their sins. They're dying, in fact. And you say, oh, that sounds bad, Jesus. What are you going what, what to do? And Jesus says, I'm going to rescue them. I'm going I'm to die in their place, actually, so that they, it's the only way that they could be saved. I think if, if Jesus dis- described to me that kind of sacrificial service, I'd, I'd probably say, whoa, Jesus, like... I'd intervene. Jesus, I don't think you need to do that. Surely you're going too far there. Like, I think you've done enough for them already. You've created them. You've given them this world. Your father gave them these laws that would lead them into life. Your spirit has, has served them in so many ways and spoken to them. You've tried to warn them, I don't know how many times, through the prophets, and yet they won't listen to you. Jesus, there comes a point where you just have to draw a line. It's not your job to save them. They should be making sacrifices to you, not the other way round, Jesus. And I know this situation is hypothetical, but I think if I was to say that to Jesus, I think from what I know about him, from what I've read about him, for example, in the letter of Philippians, I think he'd say, no, I'm, I'm sure. I know that I am their God, um, but, but that's something that me just clinging on to that fact and, and yelling at them is not going to help them, actually. The only way to save them is for me to let go of that and, and actually humble myself. I'm going to need to become like one of them. I'm going to need to take on the nature of one of their servants. I'm going to have to sort of submit myself to, to their world, even to their death. I'm going to have to submit myself to that. And I say, Jesus, do you know how they kill people? They, they crucify them. Even death on a cross, is that what you'd do? And he's, yeah, that's, that's what I'll do. And I might say, 
Jesus, I don't see how that's going to help because if you pay for, if you bail them out, how will they ever learn? It's not going to teach them anything. And he'd say, no, this is the only way they'll learn because when they see me die for them and they see me raised to new life by my father, they will know that my name is love and they will see my power and they'll see my authority. And that's the only way that they will recognize me and exalt me for who I am. And that's the only way that their hearts will be captured and transformed to serve others in the way that I've served them. As humans, when it comes to serving, we can be so quick to to put a boundary in place and say, oh, that's as far as I can go. But like um, Simon Gilbo, who visits here, has said once or twice, how far is too far when he went this far? Now, I know this is where I probably need to be careful and responsible because I don't want to suggest that we all have to be just doormats in life. Um, You know, some of us, we can be serving other people so much that it can begin to prevent us from doing some of the other things that Jesus commands us to do. So, for example, if we're serving so much that we can't have a day off and have a break, if we're serving so much that we can't actually honour and love our family and the most important relationships, then we've maybe got things out of kilter. And there does come a point where we do have to, you know, put a boundary in place sometimes. And some of you, you are serving on too many rotors. I've seen it on church suites. You need to to rein it in a little bit. But at the same time, I want to highlight the reality that we worship a radically sacrificial servant-hearted saviour who loves us and he served us without any boundaries. And he's beckoning us to follow him into that which kind of leads into the final point. Servant hearts serve others in response to Jesus' example. So let's read it again. Jesus said, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus says, I'm your teacher, I'm your master, I'm your Lord. And so if I can put on an apron, then so can you. And um, if you're here this morning and if you're exploring faith, for example, and you're figuring out what you believe about Christianity and you're considering that for your life, then I think we have to be really upfront about about this and honest about it, that, that... When you choose to follow Jesus, being saved by Jesus costs us nothing. There is nothing we do to earn our salvation and our right standing with him. But following Jesus thereafter, it's a costly lifestyle because in every relationship that we have, he calls us to serve one another. He calls us um, to, in fact, you know, the image that he uses is he says, I want you to wash the feet of the people around you. And um, generally, over the last 2,000 years of church history, most people have come to the understanding that this is, that Jesus was talking figuratively at this point. He doesn't literally mean that we should start washing everybody's feet, which I personally am quite grateful for. But the point is that we're to serve one another, even if it's messy, even if we get our hands dirty, even if it's not that pleasant or enjoyable. And we're to do it not for moral credit, not for recognition, not for favours in return, but as a response to what he has done for us. Because we were served by him, and so we serve one another. Freely you've received, now freely give. 
He asks us to follow suit. And, you know, for me, um, I've been looking at this story this week and on and off over the last few weeks, and I've just personally found it so challenging because, if I'm really honest, it, it just has brought me face to face with how self-centered I am as a person a lot of the time in terms of what I think about. Even some of the conversations and the situations that I found myself in this week. I wish I had more of a servant heart. I wish I had more of Jesus' heart. And it's made me realize that, you know, I can't make that happen somehow. I, can't, I, I wish I could stop thinking about me, but I can't. I need help. And I think, like all things, this is where we come back to the same place when we're trying to follow Jesus. We find ourselves in the same place every time that we can't do any of these things that he asks us to do in our own strength. We can't give ourselves a servant heart. Only he can. And as I was read this story, I was drawn, I was drawn to another passage in the Bible, actually, from, from another book, Ezekiel. Um, and uh, it's a promise that God made to his people. And just to be fair, I should probably say I'm kind of lifting this passage out of its context And um, this promise was first made not to us, but to the nation of Israel. Um, But it just struck me how much these words resonate with the essence of this story today. And I suspect that there's a comforting promise from Jesus for all of us in these words. From Ezekiel 36, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You see, I believe, I think that the reason that we live in such a cynical, stone-hearted world, the reason that, you know, nobody these days thinks that you get anything for free and the reason that people think that nobody does anything truly in a selfless way is because the hearts of so many the hearts of so many people have yet to be stirred by the message of the gospel and the hearts have yet to be transformed by the holy spirit from stone to flesh they've yet to hear that jesus died for them to wash them clean And he wants to raise them to new life. He wants to give them a heart of flesh that's loving and selfless. And he wants to do that work of transformation in every human. And he wants to do it starting with us, his his followers. He wants us to help us to serve people who are difficult and serve people who are needy and demanding of us. To to, to serve the people in in our families, in our communities, in the workplace. He wants to give husbands and wives the the capacity to lay down their life for one another, not to count points. And he wants to give every single one of us a heart to serve each other in this family at Trent Vineyard. He wants to give you a servant's heart. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this and that God spoke to you through it. If you are part of Trent Vineyard, it may be that the next step for you in terms of serving would be to get involved on one of the teams that we have in the life of the church. There are just so many areas and ministries and opportunities to serve both on Sundays and through the week. It's really easy to try it out and we make it easy for you to explore at your own pace. So if you'd like to find out more, go to trentv.org serving or head over to the Connect area after a Sunday service and the team there will be happy and able to get you started. God bless.